All right. Amen. Welcome, everyone. It's a joy to see everybody today as we sadly come to our final two lessons on the Trinity. <laughs> I'd love to go on with this one for another few weeks, but I want to give another brother an opportunity to teach us, so I'm anxious to hear from him, too. But today we're going to be looking, uh, starting to look at the deity of the Holy Spirit, and today specifically, predominantly the Spirit, the Holy Spirit as Creator. But I want to go back and just give kind of a, a reminder, refreshment of, of the purpose of the study, some of the details of the study um, of the Trinity, um, the fact that the Trinity is, is this very special teaching held by the church, by believers. Um, it consists, um, teaching that God consists in three simultaneous eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And each of these three persons are equal in their attributes, in their nature, but they differ in how they relate to the world and to, to each other. And when we say they're equal in nature and they're equal in their attributes, we're speaking, this is, of course, the ontological aspect of the Trinity, that the study of, of their being or their essence. And each of these three persons in the Godhead are all divine. They have equal attributes in their omniscience, their omnipresence, their holiness, etc. And when we speak of how they relate to each other and the world, we're speaking of what has been termed the e economic trinity. And this comes from the, the Greek, the oikonomikos, which, which means the relating to the arrangement of their activities, of their responsibilities, of their, in a reverential way to say, kind of their assignments, their purposes. Um, to be simplistic, we could say that the ontological trinity deals with what God is and the economic trinity deals with what God does. Okay? Does that help simplify, understand that? So the Father sent the Son, and they both sent the Spirit. And in a summary description, we say the Father sends, he directs, he predestines. The Son does the will of the Father. He became flesh. He accomplishes redemption. And the Holy Spirit indwells and sanctifies the church. Very, very simple overview there, but... And all of this is done in perfect harmony of the three persons and of their own wills to accomplish the will of the single God. And that's a whole in-depth study right there that Avink and others have written <laughs> countless pages on. Maybe one day we'll get into that. That's, that's glorious right there. So within Christianity, within what we could call Reformed Christianity, Reformed belief, there's no debate on the ontological trinity. There are others outside who want to debate that and refute that, but... But we, we accept this as the true Father, the true Son, the true Holy Spirit. They're all divine, holy, and unchanging. So today, the Holy Spirit of God. And when we think of just the word spirit, what, what comes to mind? Immaterial. Immaterial, exactly. Well, just, yeah, that's, that's specifically relating to the Holy Spirit, but just spirit in itself, what, when you think about that. Pardon? Ghost, yeah, immaterial, you know, supernatural, non-physical, ethereal. How about soul, emotions, character, desires? So who is the Holy Spirit? Adam Kuyper, he was a, a Dutch theologian and also um, he was prominent in the Netherlands and, and the government, kind of a unique combination there, but he wrote a work called called the work of the Holy Spirit. He said, 
even though we honor the Father and believe on the Son, how little do we live in the Holy Spirit? We know not what spirits are, know what our own spirit is. And Thomas Goodwin has a very extensive writing called The Work of the Holy Spirit in Our Salvation. He wrote back in 1660, he says that there's a general omission in the saints of God, sadly, and they're not giving the Holy Spirit that glory that is due to his person and for his great work of salvation in us, insomuch that we have in our hearts almost forgotten this third person. And until the Holy Spirit is, is rightfully given, rightly given the right place in our hearts, our thoughts, our activities, there really is no spiritual improvement. If he's neglected, if he's indifferent towards, if he's just a concept, just an idea, just a thought that we study, and not a reality. And this is what I want to go into in this today. It's very unique that it comes out of the Old Testament too, which was, I want to look at both the person and the power. Both very unique, but both very present. And we all need to realize, we, we need to pray and ask that we continue to grow in our realization that we are entirely dependent upon the Spirit and His operations in us for all spiritual blessings, that it's, it's not by might of trained workers, as, as Brother Greg was talking about. It's not by the power of intellectual argument or persuasive appeal. It is what, by my Spirit, says the Lord. From Zechariah 4, 6. So, as we begin our study, we must begin at the beginning, right? To briefly look at the deity of the Spirit, I want to look at him, as I said, as creator, and in two aspects, his power and his person. Because I want to not only look at the vast work, the powerful work accomplished by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person, but also I hope that you, like Myself was, was just enlarged in an understanding and a worshipful attitude of the Spirit as that third person of the Trinity and that relational aspect we have with him. And we can more easily identify and respond to Jesus as the Son of God, as we heard from, from Brian and, and Landon, because of his humanity in Christ, of his sonship. That helps us understand that relational identity he had with the Father, and from this, we understand and learn that we can call God the Father and have all the rich images related to him and his attributes that fuel our worship. We, we get that because we have that relational aspect in our lives, our fathers, our mothers, our sisters, our brothers. But when we consider the Holy Spirit, we, we may seem to express somewhat of a distant, almost a, like I said, impersonal relationship in comparison to the Father and the Son. Now, I'm not saying this by any means of, of pointing out a deficiency in anyone by any means. This is just a reality that in our, our still in our, our nature, our fallen nature, wrestling with sin, we have that tendency to kind of dismiss something that's of that spirit realm that we're not really fully aware of and, and related to deeply. But the Holy Spirit, remember from our study in the attributes of God, that significance of the word holy, quados, quades, in the Greek, hagios, that, that to be set apart, to be belonging to God. <clears throat> and in our see, study, we're going to see the, the otherness of the Spirit's being. And now joined with the Hebrew, we have, as we remember from biblical theology study, remember the word, the Hebrew word? Talking about the Spirit himself, the ruach, yes, the ruach, Elohim, or in the Greek, the pneuma, pneumatology, study of the Holy Spirit. 
These are both biblical words for the Spirit, and they're both, they're an onomatopoeic type word, the terms, they're, and they're both what they call their physical formation, the sound they carry, and the sense of their meaning. And the meaning of it is it has an expulsion of powerful wind or breath of, of air and motion, but in biblical meaning, in, in the expression here in the scriptures, it's a breath of energy, it's a breath of life, a breath of power. So, we see the, the deity of the Spirit in both Testaments, of course, Old and New Testament. But as Spirit, the Holy Spirit is creator, I want to turn, of course, to Genesis 1. We're going to look at the first three verses here. Genesis 1, 1 to 3. Turn there with me. I want to read it. I want you all to look at it as we read it. <clears throat> Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So at the very outset of all created existence, none of the men are going through the holiness of God right now in Sproul's discussion of what is nothing. But at the outset, from nothing to the appearance of all created existence, we have this foundation established for us that God created the heavens and the earth. He did it. He was responsible for it. And from that, but when he created the earth, there it was, not that it became, but that it was formless and void. Remember the two words for that from our study. Tohu vabohu, right, formless and void. Meaning that which is barren, formless, not, not laying waste and desolated, but without any form. It was barren. It was, it was basically nothingness and formless and having within it a deep abyss of waters that were wrapped in darkness. Okay? Not a whole lot going on. It was there. It existed. God created it, but nothing happening yet. Okay? It was in a process of formation, of being brought to order. It's not saying that this Rauch Elohim was a breath from God, but that the person as the life-giving spirit of God, this principle of life, worked upon this formless, lifeless mass, preparing all the living forms which were called forth into being by the following words that start in verse 3. Let there be light. So we see first that the Holy Spirit himself contains in his essence, in his being, this ruach, this life-giving power, this order-bringing power. But we must note here that the Spirit of God is not just a synonym for the power of God. Okay? Does that make sense? It's not just a synonym, but it is within his being, his essence, the power, the life, the breath giving, the life-giving breath of God. And that's what was moving upon the surface of the waters, bringing to order the very commands of the Father. Let there be light, let there be plants, let there be animals, let there be fish, let there be birds. Now, this beautiful word here for moving is hovering. Pa'il, it's, it's actually better rendered as brooding. It's, it's suggesting a, a, a vividly describing this cherishing of incipient life that's about to come forth. The life is beginning to happen. It's a preparation for its outburst. The Spirit of God is basically 
anticipating, watching over, brooding over the preparation of this life, this ushering forth, and the life, the energy life of God. And verse 2, as I said, is tied more closely to verse 3 because of this spirit's hovering and brooding over this formless mass. And the partial form and, and use of this word here clearly denotes to us a, a process more or less lengthened, and, and rather it wasn't just an instantaneous act, for we know that it was carried out the six days in order of creation. But what, what I want us to see here, we, we have to note this, is the personality of the Spirit. Only a person can hover and brood over something. This is evidence that the Holy Spirit is, is a person. Think about Paul's use of the word grieve in Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, which linguistically determines for us that the Holy Spirit must be a person. A, a non-person can't brood. You can't grieve. It can't be grieved by, by some act of uh, delegation. You can't grieve an influence. You can't grieve a force. And neither is it possible to commit an un- unforgivable sin against an influence or an active force. It's like what Matthew talks about in 1231. Paul identifies this person of the Spirit in Romans 15.30. He says, And now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. How could an, an impersonal breath or an abstract quality show love toward one another? We also see in, in 1 Timothy 4.1 that the Spirit speaks to those individually who have ears to hear, both individually and the church corporately. He teaches, he commands, he makes intercessions for us. He's our comforter. So any, any line of thinking that subscribes to a notion of, of the non-personhood, the non-personality of the Holy Spirit of God, expressed by a lot of those today is, is absurd. You know, it's typically by those who deny any doctrine of the Trinity in the church. Any questions so far? Any thoughts? B-R-O-O-D. It's like a hovering. We're going to get into some more examples of that, what that looks like. Turn over to Deuteronomy 32, please. Someone would like to read verses 9 through 11, please. Deuteronomy 32. Thanks, Brian. Amen. Thank you. The Lord's portion is his people, and, and in his care for them, we see he gives us a, a physical, tangible example here of an eagle. The same word is used here in verse 11 for the hovering. What did, your, what did your ESV say? Fluttering? Yeah. Same word that's used in Genesis 1-2, a, a moving, a hovering, a fluttering over. And it's, it's this intentional work, the care of the eagle, with its protective power, but also the affection that's shown metaphorically through this eagle, revealing the the affection of the Spirit's work towards God's people, the the vastness of his love, the power that he has, but with such gentle care that he hovers and broods over us. 
not just in the created order at the beginning, but even now as redeemed believers. He's now protecting, he's now providing, he's now educating, teaching. Even the Israelites in the midst of the howling wilderness still teaching them. And this gives us some really special you know, covenantal insights into the heart of God as, as we are related to and cared for by God through Christ and by his spirit. And secondarily, you can look at this from a parental role too, that how we are to train our children in love and the knowledge of God to see his great care, that even in the created order, we see this manifested, the same brooding and hovering and fluttering, caring for the young. Psalm 33, 6. <coughs> Excuse me. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Again, this is the Ruach Elohim, the, the powerful wind, the energy of life of the Spirit of God, that the heavens were made by the person of the Holy Spirit, acting in full accordance with the will of the Father and the Son, and contrast this to the ways of man. What do we do? We'll say one thing, and we'll do another, right? Not so with God. By the Word and the Spirit, the Ruach Elohim carries out perfectly everything in the decreed order, the perfect will of the Father, both in the heavens, the earth, all it contains and with us, in a very precise, perfect execution in exact conformance to the will of the Father and to the fullest extent of the created order. What that tells us is that every promise of God to us in Christ will be fulfilled to its extents by that person of the Holy Spirit. That's why he was sent to us for that, not only that regenerating life, but the fulfillment of all those promises to us each and every day. <clears throat> Psalm 104.30. I apologize, I haven't been writing these up on the board for you. Thirty, and we're going to go back and look at twenty-nine. Psalm one hundred four, thirty. Anybody like to read that for me? Go for it. And read. Go back and read verse twenty-nine too. We're going to look at both of those. That's right. It is only when God sends forth the person of the Holy Spirit that the breath, the ruach of life, anything is in the created order is brought forth. Anyone by the calling and the purpose of God is a heart regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So we have evidences in the, in the creation work all around us, not only in the created order, but in the sustaining and the renewing work that he has, he has brought forth. He is not only the power of the life, but the source of the life the creator of the life, the sustainer of the life. And it is truly, as Paul says, it's in him or by him alone that we live and move and have our beings. But interestingly enough, he started out, we go back at verse 29, he says, <clears throat> what happens in the opposite order? You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire. 
Spirit, the spirit removed results in the expiration of the return to dust. We see that all things depend on Yahweh and by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Any thoughts? Any questions? That's mm-hmm. <clears throat> Isaiah forty, verses twelve to fourteen. says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? and informed him of the way of understanding. And these, these three verses found in the, in the second part of Isaiah's trilogy, his prophetic trilogy, was specific to the captives in Babylon, but to remind them of the greatness of God in the midst of captivity. And in order to bring his people to, and us to a greater and fuller consciousness of the exaltation of Yahweh, the prophet here asked these rhetorical questions, to magnify God's greatness to the the expanse of his majesty, but also to give us further insight into the, again, the exactness of his working in every detailed matter and manner in his working through the life and the power and the person and the spirit of God. Specifically here, God's omniscience in furnishing the standard for which the spirit was and is to do his work. All the fullness thereof and, and precludes all instruction from without. Nothing external to the Father directed him. Nothing gave counsel to him. Nothing gave direction or, or the decrees or the wills outside of God to the Spirit to perform anything. So great is God and great are his promises to us that we don't have to worry that he's going to be usurped by some outside secondary force or thought or counselor beyond him. And we know this God. We have a relationship with him through the person of the Holy Spirit making him known to us. This is incredible. And finally, we'll go to the New Testament real quick. We're going to hit the New Testament a lot next week. Luke one thirty-five. Anyone like to read that, please? Go for it. Amen. This is the response from Gabriel to Mary's question about how can this be? How is this going to be? Not, not one of unbelief, as Zacharias was but one of belief with, with, within her an innocence of the awareness of her condition. She was a virgin, but one of expectation and really humble anticipation of what God's promise was going to bring forth. 
And even though there may be an, an incompleteness about the Old Testament's revelation of the Spirit, just as there is in, in the revelation of his Son and in some aspects the Father, we can clearly see the Spirit's activity here among God's people specifically for them. And this may have been enigmatic or sporadic. Even in the Old Testament, we see the theocratic nature and the, the selective and external and all the, the conditions, the law, the ceremonies that were put forth. But in contrast and with this anticipated new covenant, the Spirit would be poured out in a universal manner, dwelling in us as believers personally and permanently. And this is why we can see that it's the principle of the divine Spirit to disclose himself and make himself known only in and through Christ. For it was Christ that he rested upon first and then his disciples. Any questions? Have I thoroughly confused everybody? Okay. And that, that was literally just the tip of the iceberg. We could have gone into that. So secondly, I want to look at briefly, oh, wow, <clears throat> maybe three weeks. The spirit of glory. What I mean here is, just a connection here between the glory of God and the Spirit. When you think about that, what any instance first comes to mind? Any thought? Right. Right. Against sin, exactly. One thinking here more along the lines of is like the Shekinah glory, the testimony of the Spirit manifesting the glory of God, burning bush. Where else do we see it? Exactly. In the tabernacle, on, on the mount, the physical manifestations of God's glory, pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, um, the tent of meeting. Actually, too, in Exodus 33, where Moses is on the mountain, beseeching the Lord, show me your glory. And he puts him in the cleft of the rock and, and turns and passes, he sees his backside. But there again is the manifestation of God's glory by the Spirit working. Psalm 19, I'm going through these kind of quick. I apologize, I want to get through as much as this because next week's going to be really full. Psalm 19 speaks of the glory of God as seen in the heavens, a direct work of the Spirit of God in the created order to manifest the glory of God to us. His magnificence. Most familiar example? Isaiah. Chris isn't in here. Six, yes. <laughs> the year of King Uzziah, verses 1 to 3. This is, by Sproul and others, to be the greatest example to us of the Spirit of God's manifestation of the glory, revealing Christ, the fullness of his expanse and majesty, filling the heavens, the train of his robe, so immense that there's no room for anybody to stand. And what does it do to Isaiah? I am disintegrated. I love how Sproul talks about that. I am completely undone, not, and, and not just I'm terrified, but I am disassembled because of the glory of God. Pardon? Right. Woe. Woe is me. That's that's a whole study of that word too. That 
we don't use that. Right. The presence, the manifestation by the Spirit of God, of God's glory, does something to us. Amen. I mean, right, right, yep, because he has taken up in a vision and seeing this, you know, it's not tangibly, but, yep, yep, amen, and ultimately the fulfillment is, of course, the manifestation of the person of Christ in that particular vision, of whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form now, you know. All right, any questions on that? I went through that pretty quick. I can, that's, that's the main aspect of that part. And again, that's the tip of the iceberg as well. All right, Lord willing, we'll get through this one. The Holy Spirit as Redeemer. This is going to introduce all the aspects of the redemptive work of, of the Spirit done for us on our behalf through Christ. Two quick introduction, inter, yeah, introduction verses. Psalm 111, excuse me, yeah, 111.9 and Luke 168. I'll read those for you. Luke, or excuse me, Psalm 111.9. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And Luke 168, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And when we consider the Holy Spirit as Redeemer, we're looking at a very high-level description. This is the, the, the number one on the outline, the, the overriding work that the Spirit does in bringing and giving new life to believers, to regenerating sinners. So, Quick, what are some of the aspects of this redemptive work? What are some of the specific works that the Spirit does? Regeneration. Calling. Sealing. Convicting. Applying. Justifying. Right? Sanctifying. Interceding. Preservation. Perseverance. Right? Amen. Assurance. Yep. And? There you go. Amen. We're going to get into all those. Not today. <laughs> but, but with this, because we're studying the Trinity, the triune God, the economy of the, of the Trinity, remember that. We've got to consider this as, a, as my grasp for words, a joint, integrated, cohesive, harmonious work with the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Spirit wasn't a lone ranger. He wasn't out on his own doing his own thing. Not on a mission apart from the Father and the Son. Exactly. Yeah, that's the, the economy, the economic work that they do. Yeah, He reveals and applies the vast and powerful work all, at the, all the time, all the time, pointing to Christ, revealing Christ, who reveals the Father. All of his person, the person of Christ, all of Christ's accomplishments, and now through his indwelling presence in us, revealing the Father. Revealing truth, revealing the word, sanctifying us in that truth. We know from Matthew 3.16 that the Spirit of God descended upon Christ, right? John 1.32 said the Spirit remained upon Christ in the form of a dove. And this was a sign to do what? Amen. 
part one and okay, I get part two, part three. <laughs> well, it, it, it's that the Spirit remained on him, the evidence of the person of the Spirit to bring the power to fulfill all necessary in his humanity. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're getting at, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm wordy, I know. But with the Spirit, it is the Son who, as I said, affects redemption. And it's the Spirit who reveals the Son and applies this redemption to us or for all who, for whom it was purchased. I'll put it that way. Not to everyone. Right? Not everybody's saved. But again, we see here, just as in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit hovering, brooding, caring. is upon Christ, accomplishing all that work, just like we saw in Luke 135, beginning with Mary as a virgin, the spirit brooding, bring about the conception and creation. We're almost there. <laughs> We're going to make it. Sorry, I, I apologize if I'm rushing it. I don't want to, but there's so much here. Pastor Mila gave me a long outline. <laughs> That's a good thing. John 3, 3 through 8. I'll read this real quick. Jesus answered and said unto him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born in the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And here we see it is the pneuma, the energy, the life-giving energy and power of the Holy Spirit alone that brings the redemption in man, who brings salvation to a dead sinner. And I want to hit, oh, praise God, we're going to get to the first point of this, of the application of redemption. Turn over to Ephesians 1, please. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. What do you want to like to read that real quick for me? Got it? Thanks, John. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thank you. It's the Holy Spirit himself who constitutes the first fruits of final redemption, of our redemption. He is the, the earnest payment. He is the, the deposit, the seal, the guarantee, signifying a believer as God's own possession. It's declaring his blood-bought rightful ownership of his eternal soul now. But it's also a seal upon us with, that holds with it a great promise for the day of redemption, the final redemption. That when the, the Spirit of God is consciously received he's the initial down payment and he's the guarantee of the pledge given by God it's just like the king who had the signet ring 
when he made a decree, he would fold it up and put hot wax and seal it with his signet ring on, declaring this, my decree will be fulfilled. I own it. This is mine. And this is the same for us. This, this is an assurance for us of the life to come that was promised in and through the gospel. This is our full and true hope and reality, not, not an illusion, not a wishful thinking, not a maybe, I really hope it comes to pass, but stamped, sealed on your soul individually by the Spirit of God himself. And the light of reality brought to the redeemed soul is that we no longer live as one in debt to the flesh. We're no longer mortgaged to it, to put it in modern terms. But rather our debt is now to the Spirit of God. We are, we are in owing in him to live by his power, in his power. That's Paul pray, Paul's prayer in Ephesians, to know that surpassing greatness of his power to us, or, or actually in us, which is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might brought about by Christ Jesus. Amen? Any questions? I apologize. I hope I didn't rush through that. Amen. Bought by God, sealed by God, kept by God. Amen. What a what a freedom. What that that is true liberty in Christ. To know that I I can't add anything to it. And why would I not want to live for Him? If He's reality, that's what I say about the reality, the conscious reality of the Spirit's work when that comes to bear on your soul of the sin that He's freed you from and the life that you now have. Wow. Amen. All right. Be ready next week. Have your fingers ready to flip because we've got (laughs) really wonderful stuff. We're going to look at the regenerating work of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, the benefits of the indwelling Spirit, the Spirit's power and gifts and sufficiency. Uh, give you a highlight here. The Spirit's purpose and our conformity to Christ through sanctification, the illumination of truth, and the preservation and glorification. So it's going to be good. So maybe two more weeks. <laughs> we'll see. Let me pray before we go. I for, Sorry, I forgot to pray at the beginning. But Father, Son of God and Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord, for our, in, our, our inability to fully describe and, and at this time, Lord, to fully understand just the vastness of who you are. But, oh God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself. You have made yourself known for, to us for your glory, for our salvation, Lord. And all of this has been done by the powerful work of your Holy Spirit. Father, help us to... I pray, see him in a, in a new light, in a new affection, a new joy, a new gratitude, Lord, a new appreciation that our hearts would be enlarged in worship of him, of the Son, and of the Father. Lord, bless this day to your glory. Bless our remaining time together and all the worship that we do to magnify your name. Lord, I pray that you would inscribe these truths upon our heart to, to transform us to equip us to rest, Lord, in your keeping power, in your preserving power. We thank you for all this. We give you all the praise, Father.
In Jesus' name, amen.